It has now been 10 years since the start of the nuclear triple meltdown disaster at Japan's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant, which began on March 11, 2011. After a decade, the government of Japan is doing everything in its power to convince or coerce people into returning to Fukushima Prefecture, claiming that recovery has taken place and all is returning to normal. But when Nuclear Hot Seat's special Japan correspondent, Yuji Kaneko, took the recently opened Joban train line to the newly rebuilt railway station in Tomioka, he discovered... The new station is supposed to be a symbol of the town overcoming the disaster. But as I gazed upon it, I felt more uncomfortable than impressed. The area around the station was devoid of people. There was no station manager, and there weren't even any ticket wickets. My discomfort was probably because there was no one around and nothing there. Recovery is said to be proceeding at a rapid pace, but because there are no people around, it's more like a fancy new depopulated area than a town that's recovered. Well, when you see how the truth on the ground in Fukushima is far different than the rosy picture painted by Japanese officials, you realize that it's the hottest of planetary nuclear hotspots and the ultimate awful seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, our annual Fukushima anniversary special, Voices from Japan, This Is Not Recovery, featuring exclusive on-the-ground interviews with people working in and involved with Fukushima Prefecture. You'll hear first-hand reports on radiation exposure faced by workers with photographer Shishu Hida, and learn about radiation levels in the soil and food with researcher Nobayushi Ito. Both interviews are conducted by Nuclear Hot Seat's Special Japan Correspondent Yuji Kaneko, who also shares observations from his travel diary. Today is Tuesday, March 9, 2021, and here is this week's Nuclear Hot Seat, Fukushima at 10, Voices from Japan, from a different perspective. As we start, know that you will be hearing also from the Voices from Japan producer, Beverly Finlay Kaneko. It's been 10 years since the 9.0 Great East Japan earthquake and subsequent tsunami triggered the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear accident. Nearly 20,000 people died in the tsunami, and hundreds of thousands were displaced across Tohoku due to both the tsunami and the nuclear accident. Beverly, I understand that many evacuees across the Tohoku region have rebuilt their lives in one way or another, but how about in Fukushima? How many people are still officially displaced? 
According to Japan's Reconstruction Ministry in November 2020, the most recent figure of people who have yet to return is 36,000. But we have to remember that this number is only one metric and not representative of the whole situation. How do you think Japan will approach this anniversary? Even with the pandemic dominating the news, the mass media in Japan will still have a lot of special coverage commemorating this decade milestone. In fact, uh, here in late February, it has already started. But then every year when March 11th rolls around, the media focuses on Fukushima, even though it ignores the issue for most of the rest of the year. Every couple of years, Yuji notices that the bookstores in Tokyo and Yokohama have smaller and smaller displays of books on nuclear issues. Right after the accident, there was always a huge display corner, and then it shrunk to a small section. And now nuclear issues is just a tab in the social issues section. But it's not really a time to be having a noisy anniversary commemoration. Ironically, this is the very year that the government has targeted as the end of recovery and reconstruction. The budget for this year has been cut in half. It remains to be seen how the reduction in support will impact affected areas. As time marches on, Fukushima will be seen less as a national crisis and more as a local problem. What do you mean by national crisis versus local problem? It's a matter of perspective. In 2011, when the disaster was still dominating the daily news and as tsunami debris was being shipped to other prefectures to be incinerated and nuclear power plants were shut down across Japan for safety reviews, people in other places felt more immediately affected. But that wore off pretty quickly. A year or two after the accident, there was a Kansai area meaning the Osaka area, newspaper survey where 50% of the respondents said that Fukushima was not their problem. In early February this year, NHK's Hamanakaizu online local Fukushima TV news show surveyed people outside Fukushima prefecture about Fukushima. One question asked was the respondent's image of Fukushima. 34.4% answered peaches, and only 9.1% mentioned the nuclear power plant or radiation. And now, even people in Fukushima outside of the former difficult-to-return zones feel like things have gotten back to normal. There's no longer any visual evidence, like the bags filled with radioactive debris, to remind them of the accident. For them, the catchword recovery has some meaning. So the concept of recovery has a different meaning depending on what part of the prefecture you are from. For some, it's positive and others feel differently. Yes. Recovery in the coastal areas around Fukushima Daiichi has proceeded without regard for the real struggles of people still living there or for those who had to move away. Reconstruction projects have focused on decontamination and building often unnecessary infrastructure and creating a narrative of successful recovery. But these projects are still a long way from addressing the real life worries and wounded dignity of the people concerned. 
Give our listeners an idea of what subject areas this year's Nuclear Hot Seat's Voices from Japan will cover. In this year's Voices from Japan, we hope to shine a light on the shadows behind recovery and reconstruction in the recently reopened areas of the difficult to return zone. Despite the pandemic, in November, Yuji rented a car and drove up to Fukushima to check on the recently reopened areas near Fukushima Daiichi. He visited Tomioka, Itatemura, and Futaba, where Fukushima Daiichi is located. Today, we'll hear some passages from Yuji's travel diary, learn about specific changes faced by the areas around Tomioka and Okuma from photographer Shinshu Hida, and hear from agricultural researcher Nobuyoshi Ito about Itatemura. In a future episode of Voices from Japan, we'll continue the journey in Futaba. Let's start with Yuji's travel diary from November 2020. November 17th, 2020. The first place I visited was Tomioka Station on the newly reopened Joban train line, about nine kilometers or five and a half miles away from Fukushima Daiichi. The Joban line was heavily damaged by the triple disaster of the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear accident, and was shut down from Tomioka Station to Namie Station until the whole line went back into service on March 14, 2020. Frankly, I was surprised that the Joban line reopened because it cuts right through areas that are still extremely contaminated with radiation from the nuclear accident. Common sense would say that this is not possible. Part of the newly reopened portion of the line runs from Ono Station to Futaba Station, where it passes Fukushima Daiichi at a mere 3 kilometers or 1.5 mile distance. Contamination right along the tracks has been brought down to 2.3 microsieverts per hour. But the train runs through the difficult to return zone. So, if you stray from the areas just along the tracks, the radiation levels are still incredibly high. The reopening was timed to coincide with the Olympic torch relay that was slated for March 2020. Japan Railways proceeded with the construction at a rapid clip, and just nine years after the disaster, the line was up and running again. It's pretty impressive, even considering the Japanese train system's reputation for the to-the-minute punctuality. As I drove to Tomioka Station along a brand new road, the new station building came into sight. The old station, which had been destroyed in the tsunami, along with all the old buildings around the station, were gone. In their place stood a new business hotel. Tomioka had been reborn as a new town that none of its former residents would recognize. The new station is supposed to be a symbol of the town overcoming the disaster, but as I gazed upon it, I felt more uncomfortable than impressed. At least the gate to the parking lot was open, and I didn't have to pay to park my car. There were very few other cars in the lot, and the area around the station was devoid of people. There was no station manager, and there weren't even any ticket wickets. My discomfort was probably because there was no one around and nothing there. Recovery is said to be proceeding at a rapid pace, but because there are no people around, 
It's more like a fancy new depopulated area than a town that's recovered. As I stepped into the station entrance, I was met by a familiar sight in Fukushima, a radiation monitor. This is not something you see in stations in other parts of Japan. Today, the monitor read 0.07 microsieverts per hour, about the same as Tokyo and Los Angeles. Of course, the contaminated soil around the station was stripped and carted away, and new concrete and asphalt laid, and a new building was erected, so it's not strange that radiation levels are low. After waiting for 15 minutes, a modern-looking, luxurious limited express train slid quietly into the station. In my mind, the miserable station of just a few years ago overlapped the reality in front of me and I felt like I was looking at a mirage. No one got off the train, and no one got on. There was almost no one inside. In the end, I met no one at the station. In this brand new town, this recovered town, I saw no one. It's said that only 10% of the population has returned to Tomioka, but I didn't expect it to be this lonely. I couldn't help wondering where all of the townspeople had gone, and what they are doing now. By the way, before the Job Online reopened on March 14th, 2020, a problem surfaced. The Job Online and workers took their concerns about radiation exposure to Japan Railways. The train runs through areas of high radiation, so it is natural that they were worried. No one wants to be exposed to radiation at work. The union measured radiation from the dust taken from an engine filter under the floor of a train. Dust from a five-day period measured 2,350 becquerels per kilogram. In Tokyo, filtered dust from a three-month period just measures 101 becquerels per kilogram. So, the filtered dust from the Joban line is 418 times of that in Tokyo. If this is correct then the train operators and conductors would be exposed to quite a bit of radiation. And that means the customers would be in the same boat. Without offering any reason, Japan Railways ignored these results, saying that it was not a problem, and didn't give any evidence. They failed to provide any protective measures and ran the trains as if nothing were amiss. Since the Joban line began service, when it goes through areas of high radiation near Fukushima Daiichi, the levels inside the train go up to over 2 microsieverts per hour. Tokyo and Los Angeles are about 0.05 microsieverts per hour, so the levels inside the Joban line are 40 times higher. There are no restrictions on riding the Joban train. Children, adults, and even pregnant women can ride anytime they want. I think you can say that that portion of the line that runs through these areas is in violation of radiation protection laws. The media had nothing to say about the issue. Instead, when the line reopened, there was a lot of congratulatory coverage, but the problems addressed by the Japan Railways Labor Union were almost completely ignored. The only newspaper to cover the issues was the Tokyo Shimbun, and it was criticized heavily on the internet with comments like, don't badmouth the Joban line after it has finally reopened. Stop interfering with the recovery. 
You're insulting all of the workers that labored so hard. Stop harassing Fukushima. Stop spreading false rumors about radiation. I really have no idea why Tokyo Shimbun would be accused of spreading lies when all they did is point out that the radiation levels in the area that the trade passes through are high and people are at risk of elevated exposure. But this article received a lot of criticism. Probably the reason other media outlets didn't print anything about radiation along the Joban line is that they were afraid of the reaction they would get. Bringing up recovery in radiation in the same breath has become taboo, even if what is being mentioned is factual. This is not just limited to the Joban line issue. Newspapers and television avoid talking about radiation because of this taboo. They don't want to be accused of harmful rumor mongering. Let's take a look at the accusation that Tokyo Shimbun was insulting the workers by printing the facts about radiation. Of course, the workers that renovated the stations and cleaned up the tracks worked extremely hard to bring this section of the Joban line back into service. One reason is that they worked in areas with extremely high levels of radiation and couldn't avoid exposure. Naturally, there wasn't a single newspaper article or TV program that addressed that reality. Every time I have visited Fukushima to see what is going on with the Joban line, I have only seen workers wearing regular masks and work clothes. I wondered how dangerous it had been for the workers on the Joban line renovation, so I contacted photojournalist Shinshu Hida to get his take on the issue. Hida-san has been documenting what has been happening in the difficult-to-return zone since the accident. What follows is part of a conversation we had just before the Joban line was slated to reopen in 2020 in time for the Olympic torch relay. Shinshu Hida, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. So, recently, you visited Okuma Machi, and you have some photos here from your trip, which we will post to the Nuclear Hot Seat website under this episode. Can you tell us about these photos? On March 14, 2020, the Joban line will fully reopen, and they are working to repair the station and decontaminate the surrounding area. The radiation levels reach as high as 39.1 microsieverts around here. The radiation levels reach as high as 39.1 microsieverts around there. Workers are only wearing regular work clothes and regular masks. What I'm concerned about is not something like the coronavirus, where you risk getting sick now, but rather the danger of accumulation of radiation in the body that could damage DNA and affect future generations. Also, when working in an environment with these high levels, symptoms can show up sooner rather than later. I had a horrible bloody nose after visiting here. Even stuffing tissue up my nose didn't stop it. It lasted for about two hours. This happened on this particular visit? Yes, on the night of the second day in the field. My pajamas and the bedclothes got all bloody, 
Were you carrying your Geiger counter on this trip? Yes, and I was also wearing a glass badge. At the screening station, I was told that there was nothing amiss, but that nosebleed was the worst I've ever had. I remember that in the past, it was reported that people living in Fukushima have had symptoms like nosebleeds. Where exactly were you in Okumamachi? Around the shopping street in front of the train station. So, will everyone be allowed to go there? Yes. After decontamination, you'll be able to use the road from the station to the new town hall, which is in the Ogawara district. They are not going to decontaminate the areas adjacent to the building. Do you really think it's a good idea to allow people to drive there? What time were you there? Around one o'clock. We were walking around for about an hour. Do you think your nosebleed was caused by walking around there for an hour? I'm always going into the disaster areas, so sometimes I get nosebleeds. But this one was something else. I think it was from walking around in Okuma. I can't prove it, but this time was different than usual. It was as if my carotid artery had been cut. Have you been okay since then? Yes, I'm okay now. The other day, I went down to Kansai to give a presentation. The air seemed so light. The air in Fukushima seems heavy, so I find myself not taking deep breaths. When I go other places, my body feels more comfortable. What equipment did you have with you on your trip? I had a request to guide a foreign TV crew into the difficult to return zone. We first went to the screening station, filled out forms, and put on our Tyvek hazmat suits. We had Geiger counters and glass badges, and wore masks and goggles. So even with all of those protective measures, you still didn't feel right physically afterwards. What made the biggest impression on you on this trip? This was the fourth time I've been to Okuma since 2012. Now the buildings are on the verge of collapsing. The abandoned houses are uninhabitable. Wild boars and other animals have entered the houses and made a huge mess. During our visit, we coincidentally ran into some police officers. They were about 20 or 30 years old. I told them that young guys like them shouldn't be working in the area. They should send officers in their 40s or 50s or just shy of retirement on patrol. They said, no, we are okay because we stay in our car while we are on patrol. I told them places where it gets to be two or three microsieverts, even in the car, are dangerous. You're not even wearing masks. If you were my sons, I would order you to quit the police. They said they understood, but still. The cops don't even wear masks or protective clothing? Wow, that's surprising. So the prefectural police department doesn't require protective gear? I can't believe it. 
They make the officers wear regular uniforms on patrol. That's criminal negligence. That's right. It makes me want to cry. They were only in their 20s or 30s. At this point, it was 2.14 microsieverts at one meter above the ground. On our way here, the levels inside the car reached as high as four microsieverts. If it was four microsieverts inside the car, it was many times that outside then. I told the officers to keep masks in their pockets and wear them inside the car. They said they understood, but I think their superiors should train the younger officers to protect themselves from excess exposure, especially because they are working in a dangerous area. But that's not happening. If the police are like this, you can imagine what happens to regular workers around here. Was there some kind of barrier before you entered this area? It was an off-limits area, so we had to have special permission to enter. On March 14, 2020, the area around Ono Station will no longer be in the difficult-to-return zone. Will you be able to visit the area you are talking about after that? Yes, it will be reopened too. So do you think they can finish decontamination in a month's time? From my point of view, it's impossible, but they'll force it anyway. I'm concerned about the workers. Yes, you can see that the worker in this picture is just in normal clothes, like the police officers were. But the police officers weren't even wearing masks. These photos are shocking. I'm dumbfounded. I couldn't believe that everyone in our group had on full protective gear while the worker right next to us was wearing regular clothes. I imagine that if this person develops health problems, the government won't take any responsibility. No, he's on his own. When did you take these photos? December 15, 2019. Hira-san, please, take good care of your health. Thank you. That was photographer Shinshu Hida, interviewed by Yuji Kaneko. Hida-san lives in Miharu, about 31 miles from Fukushima Daiichi, and this interview was conducted in February of 2020. We'll continue with our special Voices from Japan Fukushima 10th Anniversary program in a moment, but first... Every year, Nuclear Hot Seat produces Voices from Japan to share little-heard information about the ongoing impact of the 2011 start of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. We utilize interviews in Japanese with individuals you might not hear from otherwise, sharing details that are not commonly known. It's a massive undertaking. We've been working on this episode since early December, because it takes a lot of time and energy to secure the interviews, translate them, record the voiceovers, and put together the pieces so that you, the listener, receive a clear, accurate picture of what things are really like in Fukushima now. That's what Nuclear Hot Seat exists to do, not just for this anniversary program, but every week of the year. And that is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We get into nuclear stories with facts, continuity, and context, providing a much deeper and nuanced telling than you would ever expect to find on mainstream media. In order to do this, 
Nuclear Hot Seat is dependent upon donations to meet our expenses. So if you feel moved, touched, horrified, engaged, or enraged by learning what is really happening to the evacuees and survivors of the Fukushima nuclear disaster, help us now. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That way you can send a donation of any size. And that's where you can also set up a monthly $5 donation. The same as sending us a cup of coffee here in the United States. Help us keep reporting the nuclear truth in Fukushima or wherever it may be hidden. Please take this important action now and know that I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now back to this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Special, the Fukushima 10th Anniversary Voices from Japan. This is not recovery. Yuji traveled to Itate Mura next to speak with our featured guest on Nuclear Hot Seat today, Nobiyoshi Ito. Tell us a little bit about him, Beverly. In 2010, Ito-san started working at an agricultural research center in Itate Mura. On his Twitter account, he says he had the best year of his life learning from the local farmers. Those good times have made it impossible for him to forgive the attitudes of the government, TEPCO, and the village toward the nuclear accident and the cleanup afterward. Despite evacuation orders, he's continued to live in Itatemura to document the aftermath of the accident on his village. Gathering data on the status of radioactive contamination alongside university professors and researchers, he sees himself as more of a researcher than an activist. Refresh our memories about Itatemura. Where exactly is that in relation to Fukushima Daiichi? Itatemura is 40 kilometers or about 25 miles northwest of Fukushima Daiichi. The winds changed in the aftermath of the nuclear accident and heavily contaminated the village. Because the town is relatively far from Fukushima Daiichi, the people living there had no idea that radioactive particles were blanketing their homes and farms along with the late winter snow. Ten days after the accident, the villagers learned from the government that their area had been contaminated. Chaos ensued, and it wasn't until a full month after the accident, around April 11th, that the government handed down evacuation orders for the whole village. Actual evacuation measures didn't begin until May 11th. We've talked about Ito-san and his work previously on Nuclear Hot Seat, haven't we? Yes. Actually, this is the second time Yuji's met with Ito-san. In February last year, Yuji was introduced to him by Tokyo Shimbun reporter Takeshi Yamakawa, who we featured in Nuclear Hot Seat on March 6, 2020. When Yuji first met with Ito-san, he was immersed in a project to map hot spots along the Olympic torch relay course in Itatemura. He participated in a press conference last year at the Foreign Correspondence Club of Japan about the project. We will link to that press conference under this episode of Voices from Japan, number 507 on Nuclear Hot Seat. This past November, Yuji met Ito-san for the second time at Madeikan, which is a fancy new all-purpose community center, rest stop, souvenir shop, that's built to serve locals and lure visitors and returnees to the village. Here's their conversation. 
Nobuyoshi Ito, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Itate Mura is blessed with gifts of Mother Nature, and it was a thriving farming village. And it was a thriving farming village, wasn't it? It's said that before the nuclear accident, villagers got about 40% of their food from the wild. When the snow melts in the spring, you can pick all kinds of mountain vegetables like bracken and Japanese butterbar. People would pick large amounts and pickle them for storage. In the fall, you can pick lots of wild mushrooms, which can also be prepared for storage. In this way, people would stock up for winter when fresh vegetables were not available. Also, the temperature in Itatemura varies greatly from morning to afternoon. So during the growing season, it is an excellent environment for farming vegetables. Itate is also blessed with rich natural compost in its mountains. It's fluffy and perfect for enriching the soil in the fields. In this way, Itatemura was endowed with many gifts of nature. But those gifts were destroyed by radiation from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear accident. Everything has been ruined. If everything that grows in Itatemura is contaminated with radiation, it must be an unbelievably horrible situation for the farmers. Well, I like to eat. So I began to wonder if there were some way we would be able to enjoy things from around here again. First, I thought it would be important to measure the radiation levels in the food. So I bought equipment so that I could do that. Next, I convinced the mayor to buy non-destructive radiation testing devices for food products. So what is the difference between the equipment you have at home and what the mayor bought for the town? The equipment I have at home requires materials to be chopped up finely in a blender before measurement. The non-destructive assay device doesn't require that step. After measuring for radiation, you can eat or cook the food like normal. We have about nine of those devices around town now. I come to Madeikan Community Center quite often to use the radiation monitoring equipment here. Recently, I counted up all of the times I've measured things here. Between April and December last year, I used the equipment 250 times. Unfortunately, the village radiation measuring equipment is only for food items. I'm really curious about the effect radiation levels in compost has on food. So I want to measure compost too. So I have to use my machine at home to do that. Take a look at this graph. It shows measurements of 51 different soil samples taken in 2019. 33 of the samples were of decontaminated soil. They averaged 10,744 becquerels per kilogram. 13 of the samples were of soil that has not been decontaminated. Those measured 42,667 becquerels per kilogram. Five samples of the soil from the Nagadoro district, which is still in the evacuation zone and has not been decontaminated, averaged 
47,709 becalos per kilogram. As a reference for our listeners, can you tell us what the soil measured before the accident? Before the accident, in 2010, soil in Fukushima measured just 21 becalos per kilogram of cesium 137, according to the Nuclear Regulation Authority. That means Itatemura is now 2200 times more contaminated than it was before the accident. Even after 10 years, the radiation levels haven't gone down. This indicates that the cesium released by the nuclear power plant has become embedded in the natural circulation system and won't dissipate so easily. Trees take up cesium from the soil, it travels up to the leaves, which falls in the autumn and becomes soil. And the trees take up the cesium from the soil again, and the cycle goes on. This is why cesium levels don't decrease at all. This is the state of radioactive contamination in Itatemura. Recently, the Nagadora district in the village has been in the news. Can you tell us about that? Yes, that situation has become a hot topic lately. The government has decided not to decontaminate that area at all. Despite it being severely contaminated, they are still going to remove the evacuation orders in 2023. I think this is outrageous. But it's not just a problem in the Nagadoro district. 19 out of 20 administrative districts have already had evacuation orders lifted. But only 16% of those areas have been decontaminated. In other words, 84% of the village has not been decontaminated. And this isn't only happening in Itatemura. On November 1st, I went with Professor Imanaka from Kyoto University to survey the Akogi district, which is in the evacuation zone bordering the Nagadoro district. The Akogi district lies between Fukushima Daiichi and Itatemura. This is an area where the radiation levels are so high. That they had to shut down the village. I took some samples of plant material. In particular, I'm looking into cedar bark. Ever since the accident, the radiation levels in cedar bark have remained high. I like to sample more types of tree bark, but I'm not a tree expert, so I'm sticking with cedar, which is easy for me to pick out. I also picked some goldenrod and some Inohanatake mushrooms. That were growing around the cedar trees. The radiation levels in these samples were shocking. The cedar bark ranged from 20,000 to 60,000 becquerels per kilogram, compared to the levels in the Itatemura, which are 3,000 to 6,000 becquerels per kilogram. The contamination in Akogi district is horrendous. The levels are tenfold. The golden rod. In Akogi was 130 becquerels per kilogram, whereas in Itatemura it is around 7.5 becquerels per kilogram. I was really surprised at the Inohanatake mushrooms. There were 220,000 becquerels per kilogram. The highest reading I have ever gotten was for the Koshiabura plant in 2015. That was 270,000. The Inohanatake mushrooms were second only to that. One thing I understood from this survey is that although Itatemura is horribly contaminated, 
the radiation levels in Akogi district are one to 200% higher. So here we are, almost 10 years since the nuclear accident, and there are still areas where the radiation levels are shockingly high. I've heard that Inohanatake mushrooms are really delicious and quite popular around Fukushima. I guess you'd better not eat them now. After the nuclear accident, the radiation limit for food was set at 100 becalos per kilogram. Inohanatake mushrooms measure 2200 times that limit. Experts say that before the accident, wild mushrooms were about 0.1 becalos per kilogram. That means that wild mushrooms now have 2.2 million times more radiation than before. That's way too high. How do you feel about the 100 becquerels per kilogram government safety standard for food? Well, I don't have any scientific knowledge as to why the government set the level of radiation contamination in food at 100 becquerels per kilogram. But in my personal opinion, at my age of 70 years old, it's not such a problem. I do think that children and young people. Who are said to be 20 to 30 times more sensitive to radiation should not eat contaminated things. I think the attitude we need to take is that the children, who have their futures ahead of them, should eat food with as little contamination as possible. Otherwise, I think that people who trust the government standards should go ahead and eat that food. I know from the tests I've run myself. That the levels of radiation in vegetables that the farmers are selling around here is low. If you are okay with less than 100 becalos per kilogram, then you should feel free to eat what is being sold. Likewise, there are people that don't want to eat food with even one becalo per kilogram. They shouldn't eat things they aren't comfortable with. Accusing people. Who don't wish to eat food that registers below the 100 becquerels per kilogram mark of harmful rumor mongering is a problem. If there is a nuclear accident, radiation is going to enter the food chain. Bringing the level down to zero is almost impossible. You can't deny that radioactive particles are in the food, even though they might be at a very low level. Even if there is less than one becquerel of radiation in the food, you can't attribute that to rumors. It's just unwelcome fact. It's a very difficult problem. The farmers are working very hard and desperately trying ingenious methods of reducing the amount of radiation in their products, but they can't bring it down to zero. That's the reality of a nuclear accident. That's the unfortunate truth. Let's change the subject a little. Do you think the children in Itatemura are being kept safe from radioactive harm? The school grounds are being kept below 0.1 microsieverts per hour. So I think there is nothing to worry about when they are at school. But there are places right nearby the school. Where we've measured extremely high levels of radiation. The teachers warn the children not to play outside of the school ground. 
that the areas around the downspouts and gutters have high radiation and that piles of leaves are contaminated. But it's really difficult for kids to follow the rules all of the time. Kids want to go out when the weather is nice and play around and get all muddy, don't they? A warning not to go somewhere or do something is likely to make some kids want to do the opposite, isn't it? But the radiation levels outside aren't something to kid around about. If the levels were double the original background level of 0.05 microsieverts per hour, then it might not be a problem. But we are talking about 20 to 30 times what it was before. Children are 20 to 30 times more sensitive to radiation than adults. And if the radiation level is 20 to 30 times what it should be, then what impact will that have? Maybe it doesn't mean that one will absolutely develop cancer, but it does mean that one's risk definitely becomes higher. That is a well known fact. That's why we try as hard as we can to not expose children to radiation. It's why we have to protect children from radiation. The government needs to communicate that fact, but it doesn't. The national government doesn't feel the risk of radiation, neither do the prefectural administrations. When they evaluate the effects of the nuclear accident, they don't clearly communicate the risks of radioactive exposure. No matter if great or small. For example, when Tokyo University and the village cooperated on making a map of Itatemura's contamination levels, they did nothing to explain what the levels of radiation meant and the relationship of exposure and risk. I think that's wrong. If they don't make the risks clear, then residents. Can't research about their own risks of exposure and can't decide whether this is a good place to live or not. Even so, the government doesn't say anything about risk. This is hard to forgive. This year, I burnt firewood from the village and used the ash as fertilizer in an experiment to see how much radiation would be taken up in potatoes that I grew. The potatoes that I grew in contaminated soil only did not take up any of the cesium in the soil, but potatoes that I fertilized with ash from the village took up 4% of the cesium from soil mixed with the contaminated ash. The radioactive particles attached to ash are observed by vegetables much more easily. I showed this data to the mayor and tried to convince him. To ban the burning of fields in the village. But my request was rejected. I was told that if farming is going to start up again, then burning fields is necessary. Sounds like he's putting the economy before people's health. He thinks there is no connection between radiation and harm to health. I'm half joking when I say this, but everything Mayor Kano's administration has done. Has been on the premise that radiation in Itatemura is not harmful. No, the government doesn't like to talk about the risks involved with radioactive exposure, does it? Speaking of leadership, 
I heard that you are getting a new mayor in Itate Mora. What is he like? He studied physics in college, so he is well versed in the three principles of radiation protection time, distance, and shielding. I'm really looking forward to seeing how the village will change under his leadership. The previous mayor practically ignored the subject of radioactive contamination. So the new mayor has been critical of his actions. But the former mayor was a real go getter, wasn't he? He sure did manage to get a lot of money out of the government. Yeah, that was just great, wasn't it? Itatemura has attracted huge amounts of money from the government. Between 2012 and 2017, we received 60 billion yen, almost $600 million, in reconstruction funding. It's said that members of the Mayor's Supporters Association received a good chunk of that money. <laughs> As a politician, the old mayor wasn't hard to figure out. We covered this story last year as part of the Voices from Japan Fukushima Anniversary Program, and we will link to it on the website under this week's show. But quite a bit of that money was spent on a new school, wasn't it? Yes, they spent 4 billion yen, almost $40 million, on a school for preschoolers through junior high schoolers. Across the street, there's a park that cost 2.3 billion yen, over $22 million. How many students are there? 115. That's quite a bit of money per student, isn't it? It must be the most extravagant school in all of Japan. <laughs> <laughs> For taxpayers, it's a really sad story. But the government has spent billions of yen of tax revenues with dismal results. And it's not just Itatemura. For example, in Katsurao village, they spent 4 billion yen, almost $40 million, to repair and remodel their school. But no students came back. In the Yamakiya district in Kawamata town, the junior high reopened and closed down again after two years. There are no elementary aged kids and only three junior high students in the town. You might wonder why some villages have fewer than 10 students when Itatemura has been able to attract more than 100. It might not be a polite way to say this, but it's as if the village is engaged in the poverty business. The village pays for everything for the students. The only thing the parents have to pay for is their underwear. The rest of it is paid for by the village. It's compulsory public education. So, of course, tuition is covered. But the village pays for things usually covered by the students' families, like lunch and field trips. The village pays PTA dues and it pays for uniforms and shoes. It's impolite, but I really think this can be called poverty business. I can see how some families where money is tight might be tempted to move there despite the radioactive contamination. There really are people who have changed schools because they are attracted by these perks. I don't mean to criticize the parents who are taken in by the offer, 
but I do wonder what they are thinking about the risks of radioactive exposure. It's the responsibility of adults to reduce their children's risk. But if you have two or three school aged children, the costs add up quickly. So it's understandable. It really seems to show how far the village will go to keep up the appearance that it is going to survive. Schools are symbols of recovery. In depopulated areas and marginal villages, the whole village will turn out for school events like Sports Day. It's a chance for everyone to gather and have a little excitement. There's a big difference between having a school or not. It gets lonely without a school around. But is that really a good reason to attract children to a contaminated village? To me, it's unforgivable. Well, Itate Moro was only able to attract about 100 students, even after offering all those perks. Itate Mura has only 115 students when there should be around 700. Somewhere between 500 and 600 students who were supposed to come to this school ended up going elsewhere. Of course, the reason is radiation. Nobuyoshi Ito, thank you for being our guest on Nuclear Hot Seat and updating us on the continuing challenges faced by Itate Mura. Thank you. That was Nobuyoshi Ito, interviewed by Yuji Kaneko. Today, Ito san talked about Itate Mura, but depopulation is a problem in all of the areas that were severely contaminated by the nuclear accident. Most of the municipalities see depopulation as more of a problem than radioactive contamination. A drastic decrease in population may cause a village to disappear altogether. This message comes across clearly in the measures a village is willing to take to avoid extinction. Ito san seemed to feel very bad that the government was spending so much money on Itate Mura when the country is in a state of emergency due to the coronavirus. Ito san was especially exasperated that the village was luring people to Itate Mura with slogans like, Come to Itate Mura, and Itate Mura is the place to raise kids. Without being transparent about the big disadvantage of exposure to radiation. Unfortunately, the village's lifeline of the government recovery fund isn't going to last forever. It will be cut off. It's only a matter of when. What will happen to Itate Mura then? All we can do is pray that by then, the village can deal with radiation in a meaningful way and somehow find a semblance of recovery. Yuji had a few thoughts in his diary that he wanted to share to finish out today's program. Let's give a listen. On November 18th, 2020, I left my hotel in Minamisoma and headed to the Madeikai Community Center, Farmer's Market, and Rest Area in Itatemura to interview Ito san. The village is on a high plateau, and 75% of the 230.13 square kilometers. Or 88 square mile area is forested. The Manogawa River runs in the north, the Niidagawa and Itoigawa rivers in the middle, and the Hisogawa River in the south, framing the village farmland. From this simple description, 
you can imagine just how enchanting a place it is. But when you go to see it with your own eyes, although it is an unmistakably beautiful place surrounded by nature, sadly, much of it is still contaminated with radiation. On some of the farms, they are quietly stripping the contaminated topsoil. On others, the ubiquitous black bags of contaminated debris sit in piles three or four layers deep. The heavy machinery working on the farms are not tractors and cultivators, but rather bulldozers and cranes. In much of the rest of the prefecture, most of the black bags have already been carted away to interim storage and processing sites. But I was surprised to see that in Itatemura, that work still has a long way to go. When I arrived at the village, I saw strangely modern-looking new buildings here and there. The rest area, community center, town hall, and spa were all sparkling new. I know that they were built with the aim of regenerating the village after the nuclear accident, but I couldn't help feeling that they missed the mark. They were like the wrong jigsaw puzzle pieces being forced into place. That feeling that something was off became clear once I spoke with Ito-san. A nuclear accident doesn't just cause harm to human health. It also destroys the local community and the culture of the areas affected. Also, once the natural environment is damaged, it's impossible to restore it immediately. Recovering from serious radioactive contamination is an endless process. It doesn't matter how much money or manpower you throw at the problem. It's no use. Have the adults among us forgotten that simple truth? Surely the children in Itatemura understand. I don't know why, but as I watched a tiny handful of children playing innocently on the pristine new lawn in the back of the Madeikai facility, I felt certain that they knew. That was Yuji Kaneko reading from his travel diary from his trip through Fukushima Prefecture. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 9, 2021. Our thanks to Voices from Japan special producer Beverly Finlay Kaneko, who provided translations from the Japanese, as well as the context script. On-the-ground interviews and observations were by Special Nuclear Hot Seat Japan correspondent Yuji Kaneko. Our voiceover actors were Shuhei Kanushito for Shinsu Hida, Hiro Matsunaga for Nobuyoshi Ito, and Ryan Kaneko for Yuji Kaneko. Thanks also to Ryan Kaneko for production assistance and Kei Ogawa for voiceover casting. This is Libby Halevi sending love and respect to the people of Fukushima and all Japan. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.